So this morning is February 25th. It is 2007. And our message this morning is the Seven Feasts. I come from South Louisiana. And it is said that in South Louisiana there are more festivals than anywhere else in the world. We celebrate strawberries, crawfish, blues, anything that we could find a way. Some 300 odd festivals every year. Well, the neat thing about those festivals is they were fun, you know. There was music and dancing and good food. But how would you like to have a culture that your festivals, your celebrations, were directed from God Himself to you to convey a message to you and your children and indeed the whole world as they watched? I mean, how awesome would that be? Did you know that God was so interested in Israel throwing the right kind of parties that He wrote extensive chapters about it? Isn't that great? The early church kept these feasts too, by the way. You know, Paul didn't say there's a feast in Jerusalem that I'd like to attend. He said there's a feast in Jerusalem that I must attend. He was a Jew, and he went. So anyway, we're going to start this morning in uh, Matthew 26. I want to show you some things in the New Testament. We're going to start with our first feast, which is Passover. You notice that the communion elements are set out before us. They're here, they're in Baton Rouge with our group there. And after this service, after you've learned a little bit more about the feast, we as a church will take communion together. Uh, The writer Matthew, a Hebrew, writing to a group of people who understood Jewish customs. And look in the 26th chapter, starting in the first verse. Matthew 26, starting in the second verse. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, He said to His disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. As you know, the Passover is only two days away. This was something that they looked forward to. It's something that they anticipated. It's something that occurred every year. It wasn't new to them. They didn't have to struggle to understand what He was saying. He's saying there's a moment in time coming. It's called the Passover. And this is going to be the moment in time when I will be handed over and crucified. Look down to the 18th verse. Tell me when you're there. He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Isn't it interesting that in Christianity today, people can debate, well, was this Last Supper, how we got that name that is beside me, the Gospel writers seem to go out of their way to make sure you understand it's Passover. But we, we debate things like, was this a Passover meal? People are concerned because they don't understand how Jesus could be both being crucified on the Passover and Him eating a Passover meal with His apostles. The Word goes out of its way, though, to draw your attention to the fact that this is Passover week, that they're making making preparations for the Passover. And there's a reason for this. These people were familiar with Passover. They knew what it meant. They started to understand something about it. Contained in the culture of the Jewish people are rich, vibrant elements that we are robbed of if we don't study and find out why God gave it to us this way. Why of all the appointed times was Jesus handed over to be crucified at Passover? By the way, the Jewish day starts at 6 p.m. in the evening. 
So 6 p.m. in the evening one day to 6 p.m. in the evening the next day would be a 24-hour day. Do you understand how you could have a dinner at night and it'd be a Passover day dinner and also a crucifixion the next afternoon and it'd still be the same day? It's amazing when we take off our American lenses. You know, our Greco-Roman calendars, our Roman method of keeping time, and we begin to look at the culture the Scripture was given in. All of a sudden it makes more sense. The Passover lamb had to be slaughtered. In English it says twilight. In Hebrew there's no word for twilight. It is between the lights. Had to be slaughtered between the lights. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I think it is too. Watch this though. This really gets good. Turn with me to John. I want to call your attention one thing before we dive headlong into the Old Testament. In John, we have a guy who is announcing Jesus. He's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. You're going to be in John 1. You've heard messages on this before, I'm sure, Jesus the Lamb of God. I just want you to begin to form this idea. The apostles go out of their way in the four, test, or the four Gospels to show us it's the Passover week that all this is happening. To us, that's just like, well, great, it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Friday. To them, it took on an entire cultural significance that meant something. When Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name that is above every name, is announced to the Jewish people, when somebody stands anointed by God, speaking the holy word of God, and begins to cry out concerning Jesus, they chose very specific wording. In John 1, look at the 29th verse. Somebody read that out. Read it loud. Look, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. What an introduction. Somebody sent me an email to Steve Harvey introducing Jesus, you know, the guy who does Showtime with the Apollo. And he gave a seven-minute introduction, and it was neat. It was moving. It was neat and moving because he was energetic. It's amazing how people learn to imitate a style of preaching without the substance. But in any case, all of the things that he said, and you know what he didn't say in those seven minutes? Behold, the Lamb of God. It's an amazing thing, but in this culture, that word lamb meant something very specific. And when he tied lamb to taking away the sin of the world, all of a sudden the people stood in awe. What could that mean? We've heard that there is a righteous king, a son of David coming. We've heard that there's a mighty prophet like Elijah coming. We've heard that one like Moses is coming. People who can call down fire from the skies and commune with God face to face. And now he's being announced as a lamb. And they must have stood there somewhat perplexed because they knew to them what a lamb was. You know, at different times in history, different objects have had different connotations associated with them. For instance, the crucifix that we wear around our necks or cross that we wear around our necks. To us, this is a symbol of Jesus and what he did, right? This is a holy thing, a, a, a beautiful thing, something treasured. To the first century Christian, it would be like wearing an electric chair around your neck. It would not be something holy, something beautiful. It would be something ugly, something that was a sign of capital punishment. But if Jesus had been crucified in an electric chair, if he had been killed in an electric chair, I imagine the church today would have big electric chairs on their walls. Not saying that this is right or wrong. The truth is I'm indifferent to it. To my generation, I think that it's lost all meaning because all of our heavy metal stars wear them. So... 
There is no particular significance associated with it anymore for me. This word lamb has a particular connotation. Turn with me to Exodus 12 and let's talk about this lamb. Tell me when you're there. All of you get there. Don't anybody not be there. Meet me there. Dwell with God there. Have fun there. There you will be fed. (laughs) Come on now. Last week we talked about cutting covenants, didn't we? You remember that in a covenant there are promises. There are signs of your covenant. And most of all, there is a bloody price that is paid for a covenant. Well, in Israel, we start this Passover season, this beautiful feast that shows the whole world something during a specific time. And very uh, detailed accounts are given to us. So we're going to read about the very first one. By the way, as far as passing over, you all know what the word refers to? To pass over? Death. The death is passing you by. You're finding life. That only happened for Israel one time. Once. Uh, Some of you don't even know what I'm alluding to, but there's this theory where I'm from called transubstantiation. This is the idea that in this stuff down here, Jesus' real body, His real blood, is somehow presented as a sacrifice each time. Not symbolic, not commemorating, each time, actual flesh, actual blood. As like Luther, who loved the Lord, but were surrounded by a church that taught this, said, you know, I don't quite understand it, but somehow or another it must happen. It's a mystery. Other people fought wars over this. In England, there was a hundred-year period where people were killed for believing this or not believing this. The Last Supper was a Passover meal. Israel did Passover meals for 1,600 years, but only the very first sacrifice was actually a passing over. Everything after that, you're going to find out, was to commemorate it. Now, this may mean nothing to you in Texas. In South Louisiana, this is the kind of thing people draw a line in the sand and want a box over. Kidding. Okay. Y'all ready? Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moshe and Aaron in Egypt... This month is to be for you the first month. My God, I love that. First thing I want you to know about the Passover is it's the first month of the year. Nisan. You thought that was a Japanese word. It's not. It's a Hebrew word. It's only got one S. Nisan. It's the first month of the year. You know what's nice about that? Nisan had never been the first month of the year before God just said it. Isn't it good that God can do that? In fact, we see a precedent set here in Scripture where God can say, oh, you're going to pass from death to life and this is your first month. Why, God? Because I said so. You know why I like that? Because this gives our Jewish apostles the right to write to us in the book of Corinthians and say, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Today, all things are new. We have a reason. We have a precedent in our history that says, wow, At the moment you crossed over from death to life, we're going to call you new. But wait, Lord, don't you know this is not really the first month? He goes, I don't care. I called it the first month. Now, Israel did something that was kind of funny. We do it too. They kept a civil calendar and a religious calendar. Why? Why? Why do that? The same reason you refer to your old life and your new life all of the time. Friends, let's throw away the civil calendar. Let's live the religious calendar. Let's not live two different lives at work and church. Let's not have one set of vocabulary in church and another set of vocabulary at work. Let's not live duplicitous lives. The proverb says when you do that, destruction is your end. Isn't that right, Mandy? 
man who's been teaching me the Word and I love it. I love that our church is fired up, excited, carrying around Scriptures, speaking the Word to each other. I've been getting surprise visits from Christians bringing me the Word and sometimes bringing me things like little miniature pizzas that I happen to love. Good job, brother. We're living it. It's starting. The snowball is rolling, but it's not headed towards hell. Isn't that nice? This is how we begin to generate momentum that is the kingdom of God on earth. First thing God says about this Passover feast is it's for you to be the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God. For his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Oh, my goodness, you can almost hear the Great Commission in these words, huh? You've received the Lamb, one for your household. You're so excited about passing over from death to life, you realize, whoa, this Lamb was meant for everybody. It's supposed to be 100% consumed. God's not willing that anyone should perish. I better go find a neighbor to come eat some of this Lamb and join with me. You're supposed to share the Lamb. Why? Because you're passing over from death to life and you are excited. You can't wait for the world to know. In fact, you might say that this will start in your town and spread to your whole city and then from your city to your country and the world. This is where these ideas are born from. The Word bears this out. This is a culture that God was cultivating. He was working so that it would have certain characteristics so that when somebody says, Behold the Lamb! One of the thoughts that should be associated is, wow, I'm going to share that guy with my neighbors. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. That's because Jesus is both the king of the sheep and the sacrifice for sin. A goat was a sin offering. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all of the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. I want you to think for a second. You're in first century Israel, right? You're excited. You're hear rumblings about this Jewish carpenter and then a prophet that has been shaking the nation, calling the fathers to repentance, calling the sons to repentance, standing flat-footed and rebuking the wicked king that you don't like for his sexual immorality. This awesome, powerful guy who dresses like Elijah, who is telling the whole nation, you need to repent. And the biggest problem the nation had was they thought they had already done all they needed to do. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. At least we don't have to eat locusts and... Wear camel's hair though, right? So this guy is standing there and he says, Behold the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. This would have been the kind of thing you'd have been laying in your bed at night talking about. What did he mean? We know he's a prophet. We're excited, but the Lamb come to take away the sin of the world. What's he talking about? Do you think it's any mistake then that to complete the picture for the whole nation, the week of Passover is when Jesus is killed? Doesn't that just kind of bring it full circle? Of course it does. On the 10th of Nisan, they took this lamb into their house. On the 14th of Nisan, they slaughtered it. Why four days did they examine it? 
They needed to make sure that there was no flaw in Him. Friends, you're already supposed to have examined your Messiah. Is His Word true or is it not? Is there flaw in Him or is it not? And we all cry He's perfect, and yet when He gives us direction, we try to find fault with it. From the tenth of Nisan is the time period before receiving the sacrifice where you examine it. Is this worth it or not? Will this really bring me from death to life or not? If it will, let's slaughter it, cover ourselves in His blood, and move on. Saints, it would be so good if the Christians lived out what the feasts teach. God appointed one nation so that all the nations would see the actions of this one and go, there's nobody on earth who's not as close to them like those Jews. We want that. Now, we've benefited in every way, but we've tried to strip all of the gospel of its Judaism, and we've lost so much. We've lost so much of the protein spiritually that God wanted us to feed on. Watch this. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Jesus, twilight, between the lights, killed on the cross somewhere between 3 and 6 and put in the grave. Twilight. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. You know what is beautiful about this? You know what else was on the door frame of the house? It's called the mezuzah, friends. We wouldn't know this because we don't have them on our door frames. There is one on this church. But if you were born in Israel, if you were living under the commands of God, there would be a mezuzah on the door frames of your house. On those door frames, you would cover it in blood. The only way that you will ever strive to keep the commands of God is walking in an atoned-for way by the Messiah. That is the only way. Everything else is legalism. But in Messiah, we find that those commands are life. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs. Do you think while the Jewish apostles are eating Passover with the Messiah starting to realize, because he's told them many times that this is going to end in a way that looks to the natural man bad. Do you think there were bitter herbs there? Do you think that they might have been tempted to weep? It's probably a blessing that they were a little bit ignorant. That although this is painfully evident to those of us reading the Word, looking through the rearview mirror of 3,500 years of history, But to them, they're kind of shocked because they still can't believe it. After the resurrection, after the infilling with the Holy Spirit, this became so clear to them. Living with Jesus, moving from death to life, being covered in His blood, taking His sacrifice, has bitter herbs in it. It might mean that you endure the rebuke of a younger man. It might mean that you humble yourself before your friends and fall on your face. It might mean that that one thing that you want to do you simply can't do. But this is passing from death to life. It's giving up your right to be right, counting your old life dead. This is a new month for me and a new year, and I will not soil my garments. This is the Passover lamb. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire. Head and legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. Remember how hard they worked to get Jesus off the cross before it was dark? Dark started the next day. He couldn't be left up overnight. 
This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I wish to God that when every one of you prayed that sinner's prayer or had your experience with God, whatever it was where you came to Him, you had been issued sandals. You were wearing cloaks you could tuck in your belt and you adopted an attitude that said, Oh, I am pressing on into the new places God called me. I won't look back. I won't let up. I won't shut up. I won't stop until I get there. You go tell that fox I will push on this day, tomorrow, and I will reach my goal. This is the attitude of the Passover. Leaving the old behind. Taking hold of the new. Something is wrong with the heart that is constantly looking back going, You know, I kind of like death. You know, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. I mean, after all, something's wrong with this attitude. We can learn from these feasts that God gave us. In these feasts, you both see a roadmap for your life and you see a roadmap for the world, the direction that the world is going. I hope to be able to allude to both in a way that you'll understand. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and will strike down every firstborn both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. John 16, 11 says, It is for judgment that I have come in this world. The prince of this world now stands condemned. At the same time, some are being covered in the blood of a sacrifice. God is raining down judgment on the gods of this world, the prince of the power of the air. In Egypt, there were ten. We focused it all on one that we just call the enemy. Satan, the adversary. This Passover lamb for you means life. For him, it means judgment. What a beautiful thing. I am the Lord. The blood will be as a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. If we were going to sell this book called Exodus at Walmart, the first thing we would have to do is have a psychologist write it. The next thing we would have to do is give it a catchy name. Something you wouldn't want to leave behind. (laughs) Then we would have to change the wording. We would have to say, you will not be in Egypt when there are destructive plagues because you are full of cowardice, given a spirit of timidity. And use your intellect to change the culture. Use your intellect to change the Word. Remold it into something that you like better. That's what we would do if we were going to sell it at Walmart. But since we're not, since we're going to eat it, bitter herbs and all, we might just know that the Passover is our assurance that when God judges the gods of this world, no destructive thing will touch us. Israel did this for 1,600 years so that when their kids... Like Judah. Say, hey, why are we doing this? You could look right at him and say, boy, when God comes to judge the world, no destructive thing will touch us. We've already been counted as those who pass from death to life. This is not our judgment. It's their judgment. This is not our day of death. For them, it's gloom and sadness and mourning. For us, it is glorious in light. We can look forward to it with excitement. Or they look forward to it with dread. You would know this if for 1,600 years this had been handed down day after day. If we hadn't remolded this in a more Greek, acceptable image that builds big churches based on democracy. 
I love you very much. I spend time at night thinking about your lives. Matthew and I pray for you. And when there's turmoil, it hurts me. I'm pressed with concern for you. But this church will never be a democracy. Never. We will stand with the Word of God even if that means Eric gets thrown out of it. Because this church is more important than any man's opinions, than any man's feelings. You know what is great then? All we have to do is humbly accept the Word which has been planted in us and it will save us. The only thing competing with it is you. It's me. Which brings us to the next feast. But I don't want to do that yet. Turn back to Matthew. In Matthew 26, we'll see something really neat. By the way, if you had kept reading in Exodus, you would have seen that they did this Passover as a commemoration every year thereafter. But since we don't seem to have anybody in here taking me to task over transubstantiation, we won't have to teach that. By the way, Mandy brought me a box full of tapes. That was our teaching in Lafayette, Louisiana, and in almost every message we had to cover that. So if you ever get really bored, want to find out what the War of Roses was in England and who Bloody Mary was and those things, you can read that. Or we could just stick to biblical history. Isn't it more fun? Yeah. I knew I was in trouble when I got there and had to teach the Bible out of a Western Civ book and start with the Reformation. Y'all in Matthew 26? In Matthew 26, 6, I want you to hear something. Jesus is the Lamb. This is the Passover week. He's setting the stage for people that understand it, that knew the backdrop. Somehow or another, we're covered in His blood, delivered from death. Somehow or another, this is the judgment of the prince of this world. Somehow or another, this is life. And watch what He does. Verse 26 of Matthew 26. There? There. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. What happens when you break bread? You end up with two halves. You remember last week? A covenant is when there is something precious split down the middle for you. Something precious. In fact, you usually would have to donate this. When you entered into covenant with somebody, David would bring his best. I would bring my best. We would saw them in two and then walk down the middle saying to everyone, including ourselves, If we break the words of this covenant, this is what deserves to be done to us. Jesus broke this bread and called it His body. He was saying, I am about to be ripped in two for you. They understood immediately, wow, this Passover lamb is going to be split. It's going to be split down the middle for us. If we break the words of this covenant, it's what we deserve. But He already did it for us. He didn't bring something that was precious to Him. He brought Him How powerful is that, saints? How awesome. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is My body. Then He took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. Drink from it, all of you. This was not optional. This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not all. Poured out for many. Because with the Passover in Israel, there were some who would not partake in it. And they had to be cut off from their people. In fact, as an Israelite, what defined you as an Israelite at this point is not just heritage. It was obedience 
Because if you did not do this, you were no longer in the people of God regardless of your heritage. Hear me, saints. It is not enough to grow up in church. It is not enough to supernaturally warm the chairs. Obedience is required for salvation, period. Heritage will not do it. And if we had to rely on heritage, every one of us would be in sad shape. Unless your last name's Cohen or Enzenberg. We would be in sad shape. The message was hard for the Israelites when John the Baptist said, Repent. Repent. They didn't think they needed to. They were already the people of God. This is the same problem the Americans have. It's time to realize obedience is a part of salvation. It says he took this cup. Now, this cup is an interesting thing. Hold your finger here. Turn to Exodus 6. This cup. <clears throat> Tell me when you're there. In Exodus 6, we're going to find a passage of Scripture that governed the ceremony of Passover. Those of you that have not seen this, it's on our website. I taught about it for three hours and cut it down to an hour and a half so that you might be able to watch the whole thing. It's kind of funny. It was our first little garage church. Matthew and I are wearing things that we made that look like dresses. We taught about Hebrew customs so that people would get a chance to see this. In Exodus 6.6, 6, the Jews derived their order of their Passover meal. All Jews did this. It's recorded in the Talmud. It's recorded in history. It is fact. Even in the southern denominations of certain churches, it's still fact. won't change. If after the Civil War we had a little problem of racism in a church, and so they split, and some became Southern, and some became Independent, and then as a little more time goes by, we have a prohibition where we decide the people of God are incapable of handling freedom, so we'll change the Word of God. Even if that happened, this is still fact. In Exodus 6.6, 6, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out. We've got no room on the board. Cup number one at a Passover meal, they had four cups. Celebrated being brought out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Cup number two, I will free you from being slaves to them. First cup is the bringing out. The second cup is freedom. The third cup, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. Hear these words. The prince of this world now stands condemned. We all say Jesus purchased us. If you had to guess so far, out of the three cups that we're talking about, which cup do you think He held up and said, this is My covenant of blood with you? He's bringing them out. He is freeing them. And He is redeeming them from death to life. There was a cup that Jesus didn't drink in Matthew 26. Do you remember? Let me read that to you. Stay in Exodus. you trust me to read to you? Yeah. Okay, stay in Exodus. Then He took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is My blood of My covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Wow, wonder what that fourth cup is. Well, verse number 7 of Exodus says it. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. 
Jesus is teaching them in the Passover. They knew what came next. Jesus stopped short. On the third cup, He says, hey, it's this one that we're going to make a covenant with together, you and I. That fourth one, we're not going to drink when I become your God and you become my people in the land of Israel. We're going to do that anew in my Father's kingdom. And they understood what He meant. Matthew 26 goes on to say, and then they sang a song. You know what song they sang? How could you know? How on earth could you know? Do you have to guess? Oh, that's right. It's preserved in a culture of a people today. Their writings still exist. My goodness, we even have copies of those writings sitting here today. Psalm 113 through 118, the great Hillel. They sang it. Do you know how I know they sang it? Because all Jews in the first century sang it after the meal. You can know what Jesus sang, and it's not all that different except they didn't have Matthew playing the guitar. Right? Jesus was good enough to do it a cappella and in Hebrew. I'm still working on it. In the Passover, we find something that is beautiful. It adds to your understanding of the text. When you say, Behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God, all of a sudden we have an instrument by which God both delivers you from death and into life, and also the gods of this world are judged. We have a four-step plan within the Passover that shows, hey, I'm going to bring you out from the world. I'm going to free you from all of the garbage that they've tried to pollute you with. I'm going to purchase you so you will belong to me. And one day, in this very place, I will be your God. You will be my people on the earth. And I want you to do this every year for 1,600 years. Would you say the Passover is important? The Passover initiated another feast. The feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Turn with me to Numbers 28. How on earth am I going to cover seven feasts? We're going to be anointed and we're going to do it quickly. Numbers 28. Tell me, I'm there. there. Amen. Did you lie to me? I want to show you something. This is confused people. It's confused people because we have made little to no effort to understand Hebraic roots. We've made little to no effort to understand the context in which these Gospels were written. So when we read and Luke might say, oh, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Matthew might say, oh, it's the Passover week. And they seem to be used almost interchangeably. And volumes of commentaries can be written about which it actually was. Or we could just read the book of Numbers. Wouldn't that be nice? You don't have to go buy all the commentaries then. You could just read the book of Numbers. Look at Numbers 28, verse 16. I still hear pages. Almost there, almost there. On the fourteenth day of the first month of the Lord's Passover is to be held. That pretty consistent with what I've told you so far? On the fifteenth day of this month there is to be a festival. For seven days eat bread made without yeast. On the first day hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. At the same time the Passover is starting, the moment that Passover closes, which is twilight on the fourteenth, Unleavened bread begins. So if we are standing at 8 a.m. on the 14th of Nisan, might we refer to it as both the day of unleavened bread and also Passover? Or might we refer to it as the week of unleavened bread in the week of Passover? The ending of one initiates the beginning of the other and they're referred to interchangeably throughout Scripture. In fact, all of these spring feasts are sometimes referred to together. How, how would you know something like that, though? You have to go buy Charles Barclay, right? You have to buy Matthew Henry. You have to save money and buy the pulpit commentary, right? You have to do these things. No? Oh, that's right. 
If you just read the Word, you'll become familiar with the terminology. So what we have, we have. We knew that Luke said it this way and Matthew this way. But did you know why? Because the whole Old Testament refers to them this way. They sometimes referred to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover as simply the Passover week. Sometimes in the Older Testament, it's the week of unleavened bread. Why? Because they're concurrent. Now, isn't it silly when you open a commentary and they're fighting about which it is? It's almost embarrassing. I have to remember that this is an age when they're using quill and paper and have no computers like I did. It's good to live now, isn't it? Anybody ever want to live in the Old West? Think about having no toilet paper and no running water. All of a sudden, that's not fun, is it? Now imagine that Bibles are very, very rare and that if you have one, it might be in a language you can barely read. Now it's really not fun, is it? I don't know about you, but this is my lifeline. There is a feast that begins at the closing of Passover and it's called Unleavened Bread. Before we get into this real far, I want you to get this. Salvation begins with you understanding Jesus is that instrument that causes you to pass from death to life. Whether he tastes good or bad to you at the moment, whether sweet or bitter, you have to consume him, which is the Word of God. He is the Word in the flesh. It's not eating a magic Jesus pill. It's absorbing his teaching and living like it. That is how you get saved. The moment that you get saved begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread in your life. Read with me about the Feast of Unleavened Bread back in Exodus 12. Said, well, Eric, this is in Leviticus 23. It's in Numbers 28. Why on earth are we constantly reading from Exodus? I like to read when it was first instituted. <laughs> the further we get from its first institution, the stranger things you read about it. Boy, isn't that true of the church today? A great move of God happens in Podunk, Kentucky. By the time it makes its way through the fad churches, all over the United States, we got people barking like dogs and scraping up gold dust off of the floor. Could it have been God in Kentucky, but not necessarily God in California? Sure. Sure. See, we, we sometimes sway like the wind because we don't have a grounding in our doctrine, because we don't have anything to measure it by. In charismania, the Spirit leads us, and we're not subject to anybody's judgment, not even the words. How sad is that? Everything that the Holy Spirit leads you to do can be confirmed in the Word. We are given a spirit of truth and the spirit of freedom, power, all those things. It's to worship in spirit and truth. Are you with me in Exodus 12? Watch this. You want to learn about unleavened bread or should we just stop with the lamb? Right? Because if we stop with the lamb, then it's the same message you'll hear in every other Sunday service. Right? Get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved. Well, what is that? It's walk to an aisle and say some magic words, a spell. How about a... Or, if we're in the Latin variety, it's come to eat Jesus, right? You can eat Him or you can just get saved in a moment, right? Nothing else. The same week that started Passover, the same day that you received Passover, something was required, saints. Something was an absolute requirement. Starting in Exodus 12, sliding down to about the 14th verse, this is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your house. 
For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, the first and the seventh, no work at all, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. The Jews heard this. They took it seriously. So do you know what would happen? Let's for a moment pretend that Jennifer and I are Jews. We're not. We're not really pretending to be. It's just an example. Sad I have to say those things, isn't it? Amazing what you can be accused of. Watch this. If this is the feast of Passover, we've taken a lamb in our house. Our children have seen it. They've laid their hands on it. We've all examined it to find out that it is perfect. The family has cut its throat, the father holding it on the 14th. We've put its blood on our doorpost, trusting that this blood, this identification with this sacrifice will carry us from the death that we're already in into the life that we need. And at the same time, we'll bring judgment on the world. Now, you know what we did? We go all through our house searching for any little bits of yeast that might contaminate our house. From the moment you were saved, you should be examining your life. Paul says if you examine yourself, you won't come under judgment because judgment begins with the house of God. The problem is we've taught Christianity as a license for immorality. We've taught receive the Messiah and sear him all you want. This is not consistent with God's revelation to Israel. It's receive the Messiah and through the light of His Word, search your house. What a Jew would do if Jennifer and I were Jews, she would have hidden little breadcrumbs all over the house. Why would you do something like that? Because my goal as a father was to teach and lead my household. I would then grab Judah. I would grab Gabriel and Abigail. We would take the menorah, the lampstand of God, symbolizing His presence, and on our hands and knees we would search the house. We would shine the light of God's Word as illuminated by His Spirit all over and identify the little breadcrumbs, the little bits of yeast, and we would take them and put them in a bag and burn them forever. You cannot have the Passover lamb without celebrating the unleavened bread feast. You can't do it. You would be cut off from Israel. And all too often, we want to go from death to life, but we do not want to examine our lives. We don't want to have to search inwardly. Friends, I tell you every week, this Bible is a mirror. When you look into it, it should reflect your life. You should see it and examine yourself. We use it as a magnifying glass. Look, David, the Word says. The Word says. Look, let it beat you. The Word says. And never turn that thing around as a mirror. We look at other people and call them baby Christians without looking at our own lives. We can't do it. We can't do it. When you look at this Word, it ought to speak to you about you first and foremost. First and foremost. This keeps you from embarrassing situations. This keeps you from thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. This puts you at the foot of the table. And as you read this Word, and you're getting it right, it will lift you up. You don't have to have anybody else do it. You won't need anybody's affirmation. You'll have God Himself. But as long as we take the Lamb without the unleavened bread, or without the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then we're the carnal church. We can't do it. Israel was taught this year after year because God wanted something. After, well, let me tell you about this Unleavened Bread real quick. Paul mentions this a couple times. In Matthew 16, 16, Matthew writes about it. He says, I want you to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. The disciples were just like us, kind of dull. And they said, do you think 
Do you think Jesus wants us to go buy some food? Jesus comes back and says, Guys, weren't you there? Didn't you see? Didn't you see how I multiplied bread and fish? Do you really think that I'm talking to you about food? And they're like, No, it was him. He thought so. It was then that they realized he was warning them about the teaching of a Pharisee. So, well, what about the teaching of a Pharisee could be leavened? It only takes a little bit of wrong understanding in your life to begin to taint the whole direction of your life. Our job, our goal is to use the lampstand of God's Spirit searching the house that is the temple of God, our bodies, looking for anything that might be wrong. If you are not reconsidering some things you've believed about God, then you aren't examining yourself. If you're not growing, Brad told me you might be dead. That's all the way back to 1993. He's always rephrased what I said, but in a better way. I love him for that. If you outlive me, you can write an autobiography that nobody, or a biography that nobody will read but Judah, but me neither. He'll have it. We're supposed to be searching our lives, examining. He said, beware of this. Look at this in Corinthians 5. My God, how does the time go so fast? You're going to have to turn quick. Saints, get good at your Bibles. Corinthians 5. There, come on. In Corinthians 5, watch this. Oh, I love this age we live in. In Corinthians 5. Your boasting, this is verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Do you think God ever cared about yeast? No. I mean, He uses the same sermon example to identify the Pharisees as He does the kingdom of God. In the same book, He goes, hey, the kingdom of God is like yeast. It'll work through the whole batch. He's just trying to teach something. The leaven changes people. You cannot harbor malice. You cannot harbor things associated with the old nature. It will change you from what God intended you to be to what Satan wants you to be. You receive the Passover lamb. Then it's time to search the house. Now, in biblical days, this was seven days. What a perfect number. In your life, it never ends. It never ends. I'm 14 years into this searching and I find things I'm embarrassed I didn't find the first day. But at least I'm searching. Am I allowed to worry about how that makes me look to you? No, I care a whole lot more about how that makes me look to the Father. Amen. Amen? Don't you love how preachers can ask amen as a question? Amen? Amen. What we're doing after Passover, after Unleavened Bread, is we're looking for the feast First fruits. Turn with me to Leviticus 23. I can't believe I'm running out of time. That's just not fair. A lot of feasts, that's right. In Leviticus 23, starting in verse 9, the Lord said to Moshe, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap the harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it 
on the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Not a Sabbath. It says the Sabbath, right? One of the interesting things about these feasts, some are tied to a day of the week. And some are tied to a date on a calendar. That means that they have different relationships to each other at different times. They're looking at me confused. Uh, Thanksgiving falls on the third Thursday every year, right? It's associated with a day of the week. Is that always the same numerical date, though? No, it's not. Some of the feasts are always on, always on a numerical date. Other feasts are always on a certain day of the week. This is a great debate about the Feast of First Fruits. By the way, have y'all ever wondered, how is Jesus killed on Good Friday, put in the grave just before and on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, he's not there, and that's three days and three nights? That is the most confusing explanation you ever hear in your life. It's so confusing that I want to free you. It's not true. It was never taught. It was never taught before Roman Catholicism dominated the world. And then it was taught because it replaced an existing feast. How nice is that? Let's have a little syncretism. I don't have time to teach on that today, but let me just give you a hint. Okay? The 14th of Nisan, the year that Jesus is killed, I believe, fell on a Wednesday. I think John 19.31 tells us that the next day is a special Sabbath, not the weekly Sabbath, a special Sabbath. King James says high Sabbath. That's John 19.31 if you're taking notes. Well, what on earth could the high Sabbath be? What could it be? Well, didn't we just read that the Feast of Unleavened Breads the day after Passover is a day when nobody can work, a sacred assembly, a high Sabbath. So if the other three gospel writers just said the next day was a Sabbath and John said it was a high Sabbath, if the early church guys did not read all four gospels and didn't have an understanding of the Jewish text, they assumed that Friday had to be the day because the next day was a Sabbath. John clears it up for you. In John 19.31 says, no, it was a high Sabbath. Sabbath. I think that Wednesday was the 14th of Nisan. The 15th was Thursday, a high Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Friday was a day that the women prepared spices, according to Luke 23:55. Saturday was a Sabbath that they couldn't go out of the houses, they couldn't walk more than a Sabbath day's walk. Sunday's the first day of the week when they could get to the tomb, first time they could get there. And when they got there, he wasn't there. Wow, go back and count those. That's three days and three nights. It's amazing how understanding the order of the feast begins to change things. What would that mean about the Feast of First Fruits then? Oh, the day after the Sabbath, this passage I just read you said. The day after the Sabbath. What did you do? You took a sheaf of wheat or barley or produce and you waved it before the whole world saying this is the first. This is the representative crop of all that's out there. There's going to be more just like it. Look! Look at this! It's perfect! And there's more like it out there. Well, what was the first day of the week? That's right, it's Sunday. That's when they found out that the grave was empty. Is Sunday the day after a Sabbath? It is. That must mean it was the Feast of first fruits. See, Jesus was the Passover lamb. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is what we are living as we accept the Passover lamb. And He is our first fruits. The great debate about this is because the Scripture also speaks about it not just being the day after Sabbath, but being a certain number of days after the Passover. Right? Two days. So that would have put it on a different day. But I think this Scripture clears it up and we don't need to bog down into that. Let's just suffice it to say that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. You received Him. You got saved. 
Now you're walking in unleavened bread, searching for your house. Jesus then is that first guarantee in your life. You have this hope. It's the hope for which you're searching your house. It's the hope for which you endured the Passover. It's your hope that just like He was raised from the dead perfect, you will be raised from the dead. Isn't that interesting? wonder if that's biblical at all. I mean, we see it here in Leviticus. Oh, that's right. Eric's favorite chapter in the Bible that I've been telling you to read every week, Corinthians 15. It says, As in Adam all died, so in Christ all are alive. He's the first fruits from those among the dead. It's Corinthians 15. It's Paul's whole basis for teaching on the resurrection is that Jesus was that first perfect sheaf of the harvest. And He's proof that there's more like that out in the fields. These four feasts all come in the spring. The first month of the year, Nisan. Then we count off weeks. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Five weeks. The Hebrews call this Shavuot. This occurs in the month of Sivan. This is when Pentecost is occurring. This is so beautiful. I hope you don't miss this. All of the redemptive qualities, all of the hope is placed in the first month of the year. It becomes for you a new beginning. Then you begin counting off weeks. Five of them. Grace. That is the time period for all of the ingathering of the church. What Pentecost is, is a harvest feast. Some say it was the day the law was given. There's no proof of it, but that is what history says. Some treat it as purely an agricultural feast. But when it's given in the Word, it's given with such awe and reverence that it was not optional for any person in Israel living anywhere in the world that had to travel to Jerusalem for it. And in Acts 2, we pick up with this ingathering. What we've had is we've had one perfect Jew raised from the dead. And now, five weeks later, counting from the Sabbath that first fruits fell after, five weeks later, 50 total days, what we have is all of Israel coming in. Now, they didn't all come in on the first one. Did I say something wrong? You'll help me. Seven weeks, 50 days. I'm sorry. Pentus, 50. Yeah, y'all help me if I get it wrong. What we have is a representative from all the nations of the world, the Jews coming in, the first harvest. There'll be many, many, many more harvests to come. And Paul talks a lot about that. Spring feast, Passover. Get saved. Unleavened bread, get right with God. First fruits, get directed on the right hope. Understand what you're saved into. Pentecost, work in the harvest, drawing people into the house of God. This is your job. Then we would skip from that first month all the way to the seventh. An amazingly long time. If you have four feasts that occur at the very beginning of the year, wouldn't you think that the next three would be spread out somewhere between then and the end of the year? It's not. The next feast that would occur in Israel would be trumpets. But before we get to trumpets, I want to remind you of something that happened in Acts 2, and I'm just going to have to remind you rather than read it. In Acts 2, Jews from every nation on earth were in Israel. They were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost that celebrates in-gathering. And God Himself showed that He was bringing the wheat into the barn by doing something. John the Baptist said, Some will be baptized with fire and some with the Holy Spirit. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. The wheat will be gathered into the barn. We had both fire and the Spirit on that day. 
And it was showing that the wheat was being gathered into the barn, Jews from every nation. And Peter stood up and he quoted something. Do you remember what he quoted? comes from Joel. It's in Acts 2. Y'all stay where you're at. I'm going to read this to you. Peter quotes something about Joel that leads us into our next feast. In Acts 2, he says, coming from Joel 2.28, In the last days God said, I will pour out My Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on My servants, both men and women, I will pour out My Spirit in those days. Was that happening? Absolutely, it's Pentecost. Watch. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. This is getting a little stranger. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These first four feasts have to do with salvation and ingathering. And on that feast, on that day, an anointed prophet and apostle stands up and he says, Hey, this reminds me of what Joel said. The Spirit's going to be on all of us and there will be signs in the heavens. Can you remember in Matthew 24 you were told to look for a sign in the heaven? I'm going to help you remember in just a minute. This is because the next feast after Pentecost, the next thing on the calendar... Peter could look and go, wow, we went through Passover, literally and spiritually. We're going through unleavened bread, literally and spiritually. We went through first Greek feast, literally and spiritually. Now we are in Pentecost, literally and spiritually. What's the next thing to happen? The Feast of Trumpets is the only feast that is marked by a new moon, a sign in the heavens. This is when the earth got between the sun and the moon and it cast a shadow on it. it an eclipse occurred. And Joel, picking up on that theme, says, Oh, you think that's a sign? Before the real Feast of Trumpets, the moon's going to turn blood red and the sun itself is going to be darkened. This is going to announce the day of the Lord. All through the Bible, a trumpet announced God's presence. Turn with me to Exodus 19. The next feast after Pentecost is called Rosh Hashanah or Trumpets. It falls in the seventh month, which is Tishri, on the first day. Look at this in Exodus 19. I bet you didn't notice this before. Can you all stay awake with me a few more minutes? I mean, after all, we've been told something, right? Uh, the, I think it was the Gaithers thing about uh, when that trumpet sounds, right? And everybody's got it in Gabriel's hand for some unscriptural reason I can't begin to fathom because Gabriel's never called an archangel in the Bible. But in any case, it's a good song. We're all waiting for a trumpet, right? All waiting for a trumpet, right? Yeah? We're going to argue about what happens when that trumpet calls, though, right? I mean, that's what the church world's doing. Watch this. This is really neat. You'll like this. Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Where are we? We're at Mount Sinai about to get the Mosaic Covenant, right? And there was a loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended in fire. The smoke billowed up from it, and the smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Turn the page, Exodus 20, verse 18. Watch this one. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet... Hmm. 
How about that? I'll save you in suspense. Leviticus 23 says that there will be a feast of trumpets on the first day of the seventh month. It's going to announce something. It's going to announce God's presence in Israel. Why did it announce that? Because when He showed up in Israel to form their constitution, to redeem them, to call them His people, He announced it with a trumpet blast. This was known throughout Israel. And by the way, the trumpet is the shofar thing right here. So, with that in mind, we're going to have a feast. It's going to come after Pentecost, after a long time period. We're waiting for something. And this feast announces the presence of God, just like at Mount Sinai, and it happens with a trumpet. But how many trumpets do you think the Feast of Trumpets is? Seven. Why does that number always show up? Seven. I do remember this story about Jericho, right? Y'all remember that? Story about Jericho. They walked around Jericho how many days? And, and what were they carrying? And on the seventh day, how many times did they walk around? And on the seventh day, they blew a shofar how many times? And on the seventh time, what happened? You mean we already have a precedent in Scripture for God's presence coming upon a people to take over a kingdom that symbolizes the world at which trumpet? Seventh? Seventh trumpet. Oh. Do you think that maybe that's why Paul says in Corinthians 15.52 that it will be at the last trumpet that our bodies will be changed? How many trumpets were there? So if you see seven trumpets in the book of Revelation, what should you be paying careful attention to? The seventh. The, the what one is that, though? The last trumpet. Oh. Well, maybe this feast symbolizes the day when God's presence is showing up on earth because there's another feast coming. Atonement. Now, which trumpet did y'all say that was? Seventh. The last. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Good or not, it's what you got. <laughs> Matthew 24. In Corinthians 15:52, Paul said, I want to tell you a secret. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, what is mortal will be swallowed up in immortality. And then the saying, Oh, death, where is your sting? will come true. He's praising and looking forward to the last trumpet. There are seven trumpets mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's curious that we keep talking about the last one is when the church is changed. Hmm. Okay, so Matthew 24. You remember that this feast is announced by signs in the heavens? The new moon? Okay. Starting in verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days. If we're going to sell this at Walmart, we need to change that sentence for sure. Immediately after the distress of those days this long waiting for the presence of God to appear, the time between when you were saved and you've begun to repent and you saw first fruit and experienced men gathering, now we're just waiting, waiting. How long will we have to wait was the sixth seal. How long will we have to wait? It's interesting. Y'all go look. We're all waiting for the same trumpet, the seventh. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. 
What trumpet call though? See, Corinthians 15.52 tells it it's the last one. The shadow and type at Jericho shows us it's the last one. Matthew 24 says it's after the distress of those days. Isn't that interesting? All the nations will see. All the people will be there. Hmm. So we're waiting for a feast. A feast announced by a trumpet. There's going to be seven of them. Turn with me to Revelation 11. In Revelation 11, good. Look at the 15th verse. Verse. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. How many trumpets were there? Seven. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God. Which trumpet was that? Seventh. So which trumpet do you think we're waiting for? Seventh. Isn't that interesting? In the Feast of Israel, we find a redemptive pattern. We also find a prophetic calendar. The redemptive pattern is at Passover you get saved. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you learn to repent, get your life right, searching it by the Spirit of God. At the Feast of First Fruits, through good teaching, you've learned what your hope is. And what is your hope? That you'll be raised from the dead in an imperishable body, just like Jesus. Pentecost is when others are being gathered to your cause in the harvest. Trumpets is the day when the kingdom of the world falls to the kingdom of God at the last trumpet. Does 1 Thessalonians 4 teach us that the dead in Christ will rise at the last trumpet? Oh, it does. So how do you think we get so far off in all of our thoughts? We hear what we want to hear, don't we? We don't like the bitter herbs along with the Passover lamb. Is it uh, less miraculous or more miraculous that Israel was delivered from Egypt in the midst of plagues, but it didn't touch them? In fact, what you find is that it was dark in Egypt, but it was light in Goshen. Go look at a map of Egypt sometime. Goshen's in the center of it. It was light for the people of God while it was dark everywhere else. Do you know why the Bible says? To make a distinction between those who were living in Goshen and those who were living in Egypt. But it was in the center of Egypt. God will make a distinction with us. Now, trumpets is announcing the presence of God on earth. You know what else it announces? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. This is as nice as it gets. It's announcing that Yom Kippur, the day of atonement for God's people, is coming. When the trumpet sounded, what you would see is the kingdom of the world is falling. Redemption is occurring everywhere. Glorified bodies are happening and the nation of Israel is finally atoned for. On the 10th of Tishri, the 7th month, Yom Kippur would happen. I wanted to read you the 11th chapter of Romans and I don't have time. But he says, if Israel's stumbling meant life for us, what do you think their acceptance will mean? Their atonement. It'll mean life from the dead. Paul understood the prophetic calendar and the feast. He knew we were waiting for the Feast of Trumpets followed by the atonement in Israel. And on the day they were atoned for, the kingdom would actually be set up on earth in Israel. Zechariah, you want to write this one down, 12.10-13.1, says that there will be a day unlike any other, a day when the nation of Israel looks upon the one that they pierced, and God will open up a fountain that will cleanse all of Jacob, and they will be atoned for in a single day. Now, those are six feasts. 
took six feasts to get man saved and Israel atoned for, right? You know what the seventh feast was? You're like this. Turn to Leviticus 23. You're going to actually have to read these even if we go long. We already went long, right? I can't find Leviticus. That's taking time. Thank you. That, that helped. Okay. Leviticus 23. Look at verse 42. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know what's interesting about that is Zechariah 14.16 says there's a day when all the nations of the earth will be forced to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If they don't, they will get no rain for an entire year. You know why they're forced to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? When Jesus, when the Word became flesh, what did the King James say? He tabernacled among us. He met His dwelling among us. This is a feast that celebrated the temporary time period where God's people were in perishable, temporary dwellings called tents or booths. After the nation of Israel is atoned for and glorified, the whole world will celebrate the fact that God's people dwelled among them in temporary dwellings and then got a permanent home from God. You think that that is far-fetched? Look at 2 Corinthians 5. think Paul didn't understand this? Watch how he says this. It's one of our last Scriptures today Then I'm going to talk to you about our Passover communion. 2 Corinthians 5. This is one worth turning to, so don't give up on me. Now we know that if we live in this earthly tent, dare I say tabernacle or booth, now I know that if we live in this earthly tent, we live, I'm sorry, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. When was mankind found naked? Right after they'd sinned. Vulnerable, naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in a burden, not because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has arranged it so that in the Feast of Israel you can see how to get saved how to stay saved, walking as led by the Spirit that will guarantee that you end up where you're supposed to go. In the Feast of first fruits, you learn what your hope is, the glorified body, just like Jesus had. In Pentecost, you learn the importance of bringing in the remnant all over the nation. Trumpets is what we're for. It is the announcement that the Day of Atonement is around the corner. seventh trumpet, the dead bodies will become live bodies. And on the Day of Atonement, Israel will again be set up on earth as God's people. The fourth cup of wine in the past will be drunk at that time. I didn't read it to you, but I thought it would be interesting. Numbers 28, it teaches you that your drink offerings that you bring to the Lord, God wouldn't accept them if they weren't fermented. Isn't that interesting? 
So, uh, in our society, we all struggle with different things, and I know that. And I'm going to talk to you about that in communion. But we cannot change what the Holy Writ says because of an American weakness. You understand what I mean there? In these feasts, what I want you to see is the way that you should be living. As somebody who's crossed from death to life, Passover, as somebody who's searching their life, continually looking for leaven, unleavened bread, with the hope of the resurrections, first fruit in you, looking for Pentecost daily, gathering in people, showing it by your spiritual gifting, awaiting a trumpet that means life from the death and announcing God's kingdom set up in Israel as they're atoned for. And then we celebrate the time we used to have to live in tents and now we have glorified bodies. Isn't that nice that in the feast you see God's plan? In the feast you see your life? My life is set on certain hopes. I'm not looking to going to heaven. I'm looking for a building from heaven coming to me. I am not looking for a chance to atone for my own sin. The thing about Yom Kippur that stands out most, and if I had got a chance to read it, you would have heard it. He says, on the day you're atoned for, no one, no one can do any work. If you do any work, you're cut off from your people. This because all of the work for it has already been done for you. The covenant has already been cut. It was in His body. It's already done. Both the blessings and the penalties are already poured out on Him. Now we get to share the blessing if we share in His life. Is that good? Okay, we're going to end the CD here.